Looking to generate more revenue and build relationships with gamers worldwide? Let Exola be your guide. Exola, a global video game commerce company, has helped thousands of game developers and publishers of all sizes fund, market, launch, and monetize their games globally and across multiple platforms. To learn more, please visit xsolla.pro slash AOIAAS. Secure your digital world in physical form with IM8Bit. For over 15 years, IM8Bit has been crafting premium expansions of the industry's best games, from pioneering community experiences for Epic's Fortnite World Cup to bringing over 100 award-winning soundtracks from breakout hits like Untitled Goose Game and Disco Elysium to vinyl, and bringing the Ori sequel to Switch. Their passion for artistry and gaming fuels them, whether they're interpreting beloved brands from a new point of view or extending the mythology of another game, perhaps one you're developing. What's the IM8Bit difference? Their collectibles are premium, but for IM8Bit, they're personal too. See for yourself at im8bit.com. Hey, I'm Chris Charla here at Dice Reykjavik, and welcome to the Game Maker's Notebook. Today we're talking to Arnie Meyer about his path from making fanzines and starting a record label in college all the way through Xbox, Vivendi, and finally 15 years at Naughty Dog doing everything from community management to understanding exactly what a head of culture does. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Just to get started, thanks thanks for coming and everything. You've been in games a long time, but what was your first? I won't say. Well, I'll ask the first game you played, but what was the first game you remember seeing or knowing about or or just being aware of? Oh, seeing or knowing? Uh, it was so. We moved to the United States when I was four, um, and so we moved into a college town and we went to a pizza parlor. Where'd you come from? Uh, I lived in Venezuela, so I was oh, born okay. in Venezuela. Um, we lived in a college town. My dad was going to grad school. And so we went to a pizza parlor. And of course, there was a sit down arcade. So um, funny enough, the first game I was aware of, which is the one I played, was Pac-Man. Um, and even the guy that was running the slice counter would give me quarters from their tip jar so I could just keep playing because oh, I was just awesome. so engrossed with it. Yeah. That is super cool. Yeah. So that's the first game you knew about and the first game you played. And did you ever get to the intermission? I assume. No, I, would, I was terrible at Pac-Man. Oh, okay. I never figured out, you know, the whole thing about where the ghosts were sort of, which ones were following you, which ones were moving away from you. Like, never figured that out. I was terrible. Uh, but that is where I got my the start on that. That's awesome. Yeah. And when did you first think about games as like a, a career? Oh, man. Um, it was probably more in high school. Um, I had a really good friend of mine um, who we were on BBSs together. And, oh, nice. Um, we were doing in the art underground and things like that and uh, logging into Usenet and reading all the forums, you know, the alt dot yep. know, music dot whatever. Um, and we were playing a lot of Wing Commander at that point. So this was, uh, I guess, pretty late high school. 
Um, and one of the things we like to do um, is we get a hex editor and nobody was encrypting all of their code. So we would like tweak, oh, the thrust value on Wing Commander so we could do like infinite thrust basically. And so we started going, oh, this is like really interesting, like that um, there was more to it than, um, you know, just buying a game and playing it. Um, and we both thought, hey, this is sort of software, internet, like things like that started to be into our interest. Um, and I was like, well, we were trying to figure out, okay, what do we do? And we wanted to get in the business together. I think that's really what it was. It was like, hey, we wanted to run our own company, something related with software. And we both thought we we're going to go off and be computer engineers. He achieved that. I did not. <laughs> um, I didn't get into any computer engineering schools and just went to a liberal arts school. But that was, yeah, it was around that time where we were like, hey, like, let's do something together. Let's become um, computer engineers and write code. Cool. Well, I think you've proven that liberal arts is an acceptable pathway into the game industry, which I, I back 100%. So you went to University of Chicago. I did. And while you were there, I did this too. So I'm curious to hear how your experience went. You started a record label. I did. Uh, yeah. So tell us all about Major Label Records, <laughs> which is an amazing, amazing studio or label name. Sure. Um, well, it's really funny because I was listening to some of your podcasts a while back and I was like, is this whole podcast going to be about punk and making zines and instead of talking about games and stuff like that? So I figured um, we might head in that direction. Um, I was really big into the ska zine, ska scene, oh, nice. um, uh, along with punk, but a lot of my friends in Chicago, um, were in ska bands and stuff like that. And there's a band that I really, really loved and I wanted to support them. Um, and around the time I was like lightly also doing promotion, it was like, I'm already overselling what I was doing at that point. Cause it was basically like, I was calling up bands and being like, Hey, do you want to play and working with another promoter to like actually book the venue? But, um, I was, I guess I was arranging the bands. Um, but there was a band there called Greenhouse that I really, really loved. Um, one of the guys went to my school. Uh, There's another guy that um, he was a keyboard player. Um, he was a DJ, who, amazing DJ name too. He was DJ, DJ Butterknife because he Ooh. cuts so sharp, you know? That's amazing. <laughs> um, so uh, they just didn't have the ability or the funds to um, fully make an album. So um, I agreed that we get together as me and um, this guy, we just got together and we pulled some money together so that they could go record the album. Um, and so we said, Hey, we're just starting the record label. Um, and we, yeah, we're trying to figure out what to call it. And we call it major label record. So they recorded the album and I was a little bit more involved in the, um, in making the, the booklet for it. Um, and those guys ran riot with the funds that we were giving them. I, I kid you not, it was like a 26 page full color booklet for wow. this thing. We spent so much money on the booklet. It was like an absolutely insane, uh, but we released it and that was our only release, but we ended up selling the license, I guess, to, um, another local big ska label called jump up, uh, that was run by Chuck Ren. Um, so he did the regular, the pressings after that. Uh, but what was really great is we even booked a record release party. I booked all of my favorite bands from like Minnesota and Chicago, and they all came together for a big uh, awesome. release party. And we sold out the venue, which is the Metro, which is a pretty big venue in Chicago. That's fantastic. Yeah, I was into ska. Like uh, Megan makes fun of me <laughs> because she likes punk and I like <laughs> punk. But I came from a ska background, and yeah. she comes from I don't know some other background. Um, that's super cool. And so after that, you. Talk to me about the, the I don't know, a zine or a magazine, <laughs> but uh, but toxic, was it toxic shock? Toxic culture shock? Uh, what was it? Toxic? It, it, did I say toxic culture shock? Total culture shock. Total culture shock. Sorry. Because it's a scholaric. Okay. Um, 
because you're the only Rudy on the block. It's a total culture shock. The only Rudy on the block, which is really, really lame when you really think about it later. Be like, this is what I'm going to call my zine. Um, around the same time of the record label, um, I I was reading a lot of zines anyway. You, it was really interesting because you could go into Tower Records and they had the curated yeah. zine section. So I'd be picking up all of these things. And I was like, well, I really like Sky. I like the scene here in Chicago. And there isn't a lot of uh, publications around it. And I was reading zines from, again, Minnesota and New York. Um, Moon Records had their sort of zine on there as well. Uh, so I was like, well, let's start one here. Um, I was in college, so I had access to free photocopies and yep. things like that. So um, mine was a little bit more professional. Like there was a lot of uh, like desktop editing and uh, it wasn't as cut and paste. Um, but I like covering the, the local scene. I got writers to do it for free and ended up being completely ad supported. So it'd be like writing even rec record labels that weren't in ska. So like, well, Epitaph was, but I got Kill Rock Stars to advertise. Um, and it blew my mind because I was like, I'm a nothing zine in a city, but they would give me like 20 bucks for, you know, a little bit of advertising that space. That's awesome. Um, and so it was completely free and I'd go to shows with a messenger bag with like 400 zines and just hand them out to anyone who would want it. And how did you, okay, so now we're, we're going to get a little, <laughs> I promise we'll talk about video yeah, games yeah, in a minute. Like uh, we, we will get to video games, but I'm super curious, like how was the zine printed? Was it newsprint? Was it like offset or? Uh, it was total photocopy. So okay. I, what I was able to do, because this was a college, I could bring in the digital files and they would stick it in this like massive Xerox machine okay. that would make like a thousand copies. And it felt like it was like 10 minutes, like something insane. So it was a total photocopy. And were uh, these, did you pay for these copies or were they like labor donated? They were labor donated. Yeah. Very good. Very yeah. Good. yeah. Uh, awesome. All the trade. Yeah. That's uh, super cool. And I, I think like in the era when you went to college, starting a zine, starting a label is kind of the equivalent today of having your own TikTok or, or yeah. whatever. And uh, it's super cool. And um, so post-college, you start working at Edelman right away? Yeah, at Edelman. Um, well, I was I graduated college. So the, the thing was, I was uh, thinking, well, if I'm not going to become a computer engineer, uh, the other way to sort of go into business was to become an economics major. And despite I did pretty good academically in high school. I complete. I did not achieve anything in economics. I pretty much failed out of that program. Um, and so I went to public policy, which actually really spoke a lot to me because I was doing um, a paper on the National Endowment for the Arts and talking about public arts funding. Um, and I was actually taking classes at the same time at uh, the School of the Art Institute of Chicago for filmmaking. So there was an art side that I really liked to it. So I was after college, I was trying to figure out what do I do for a job? Um, and I just happened to luck into uh, public relations because the web was really interesting to me. And there was a public relations firm that was interviewing and they just happened to have somebody leave in their web division and that turned out to be Edelman. That's awesome. And then for folks who don't know, Edelman does the PR for Xbox among other things. Yeah. Did they, did you end up with Xbox as a client right away or did it take a minute to, for that to happen? Uh, so when I joined, they were the agency of record for some other Microsoft stuff, um, mouse and keyboards. And I think it was Travelocity at some point too, um, or Expedia. I forgot who they owned Expedia. Yeah, I think Expedia. Um, and, uh, about six months in, uh, every, every group, every department got pulled in because they were pitching for the launch of the original Xbox. And so we were trying to pitch ideas because that was not a, that was not an account for them yet. Um, and so you know, you can chalk it up to youthful hubris. I was like, I walked in, I was like, I've got some ideas, you know, should know what gamers are interested into. I, I didn't quite do it that way, but thankfully to their credit, I wasn't so much of a jerk that they, um, I had a seat at the table and we all of a sudden we came up with ideas. 
Um, and we pitched a campaign that actually started off with the Xbox Unleashed um, in-person event that was simultaneous in LA and New York. Um, they loved it and um, gave Edelman the business, and I ended up working on the original Xbox launch and their first slate of um, first-party games. That's awesome. Yeah. How did it feel? I guess I have a couple of questions about that. Just one is, how did it feel to be helping to build the launch of something you know, a new console, which is, you know, has only happened four or five times in, you know, a new console brand has only happened four or five times in history um, and working with a big giant company. So I'm, I'm curious how that felt from kind of like the the insider perspective. Sure. As fans, we've all sort of saw what happened. Um, and then second, how did it feel from like, a, oh, my gosh, I'm actually working in games, but I never learned how to program computers sort of perspective? Yeah, uh, I thought it was. What was really great about the team, and, and I, I even think when I think back on my career, I think that that experience of working on the original Xbox launch really set into motion what I find really interesting in my career in games, which is always to, I'm always around necessarily building things from scratch, but I like building things that haven't happened before innovating. And the team on the Microsoft side, they were, they understood there were underdogs. Um, and they wanted to be scrappy. They wanted to do something that was different and really open to a lot of ideas on how to capture the gaming community. They'd had some experience with that with Microsoft Flight Simulator and Age of Empires on PC, uh, but they understood, hey, how do we harness the community? And that actually ended up being really attractive to me. So being on the inside of that and saying, hey, there's a bunch of people who are willing to try new things, something different and really cater to the gamer my experience at that time was that that wasn't something that was very common at that point. Um, I could be wrong, but it just sort of felt like, hey, this is something, um, the start of something fresh and new in terms of approaching how to market a console in the game. So it felt really great to be part of uh, a console that was like, hey, we're gonna try something different in all areas and really try to innovate um, and do something special. Cool, was it weird at all just the Microsoft side of it, like you go from, I guess, the keyboard and mouse business and the, you know, a couple other businesses that Edelman had at the time to to the game business. Was it were the people in the games group different than the the other people you worked with at Microsoft? I, I think they did that by design. They were completely different. They had an office in Bear Creek, so they were completely separate from the Microsoft campus. And um, it was filled with uh, modern and contemporary art. It was a completely different feel to it. So I think in every set of my experience and my um, contact with what they were doing, they were being very intentional about we're different, uh, we're, we're not Microsoft, we're innovative, again, we're scrappy, we're the underdogs. And I, I think that went down to the point of like, we're having a separate campus so that we're not, uh, we're sort of, we're keeping the energy and the enthusiasm and the ideas um, separate from maybe interference or, you know, at least sort of the bigger uh, corporate machine. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And and then as a as kind of like a game player and game fan, how did it feel to be on the the inside of that kind of thing? Uh, well, I mean, this was my first experience in that sort of thing. So getting preview discs and you know a dev kit was the best thing in the world. Um, I I don't even know how to describe it when I think about it because at the time it was just like we're struggling to be like oh let's understand these games let's figure out how to market it but to sit there and and get early versions of the games um, when I've never had that experience before uh, felt really interesting. It's it's something that really motivated me to go okay how can we tr how can we take the 
the learnings that we're getting this early on and having this transparency from the developers and from the publisher um, and uh, create programs or to create messages that really work with our community. So how do I take this excitement of having this early access and go, let's share this with the community and, and find ways to do that? Cool. And it, at some point you moved from Chicago to Seattle? Yeah. So um, after the Xbox launch, um, I worked on and off on uh, the games that had come out afterwards. I think it was like Oddworld was some of them and Halo yeah. and DOA. Um, but I also was still working on regular uh, PR projects. So I was working for like an aquarium and some and craft and financial services and things like that. Um, and uh, after a while, things were ramping up for 360. And uh, our group got involved again, sort of the online group. And we were doing digital PR, we were building websites and working with communities. Uh, so our group got pulled in again. And we actually pitched uh, an ARG um, that was called the Col or Colony, um, if anyone remembers that. Um, and um, that ended up also going over really well because it was very community-centric. Again, it was building up grassroots interest. And the idea for the ARG was that it would, if everything got solved, it would release, it would uh, end up with a um, video that was unlocked online that basically gave everybody, I don't know, a, a 30 minute preview to the launch of the three or the announcement of the 360 before it was announced at E3. So we ended up doing that. And again, that was seen as successful enough that there was an opportunity for move to Seattle for me to move to Seattle instead of flying out there all the time um, to actually build up a community practice inside the PR agency, take in um, some of the community work that Microsoft was doing and partner with their sort of burgeoning uh, community team as well um, and sort of build a new practice up from scratch. Cool. And um, and you did that. And were you at the E3 with the with the Xbox 360 announce? Um, I was not at the E3 for the 360 announce. Maybe I'm trying to remember timelines here, and this feels bad because I'm. It's like my memory starting to go. There was an event at the Grauman Theater where they had games. I think that was after the 360. Or no, that wouldn't have been because I moved to Seattle for the launch. So I was at the at the E3 with the 360 announce. Where I you think. got the faceplate? Uh, the, uh, there was a faceplate that they gave out like at the yeah. E3 before the system launched. So. Um, well, I would I didn't get to go in the theater because I was oh, right. working. So I, again, I don't remember which E3 this is. So let's assume it's that E3. Um, there was across the street at the Roosevelt Hotel, there was a, a, a re an event afterwards for all the journalists to go to. So I was helping actually um, set up all of the games and, and wrangle people through. So I didn't get the chance to see the actual E3 event, but I got to um, hang out in the aftermath with all the developers that were getting ready to do interviews with all the press. Um, so that was um, actually really fascinating because I think that was also my first real press event outside of Xbox Unleashed. That's awesome. And then as you started to, you know, you had been now in PR for five, six years. Did you start to have that desire to to just be more involved with with games like directly or how did that how did that how did that go? Yeah, uh, well, so after moving to Seattle, what was great about now being able to focus mostly on video games is I was getting more of the full 360. That's such a bad pun. It's getting the full breadth of um, what it's like to work at a publisher and a console maker. I was working on hardware. I was working on Xbox Live Arcade. I was working on Xbox Live, all of the first party games and even the second party published games. Um, when I look back on it, that workload seems insane. I don't know yeah, how we did it. I mean, <laughs> now we have different divisions for each of those. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. I, and even thinking I have I keeping up with the workload to launch one game at Naughty Dog 
is so much. I can't imagine how I was splitting my time across all of that. Um, we had a team, obviously it wasn't by myself, but I was having to do the meetings and pay attention to all of that. Um, I already forgot your question. Something video game, just getting, game getting, getting yeah, closer yeah. to the teams. Um, oh, uh, getting closer to the games. So that was the first time I, I had an opportunity to take a look at the full breadth of like w the machine that's involved in um, a console maker, just putting out games. And um, it was allowing me to be closer to how developers were making games as well. Um, we were, had meetings with, um, you know, Dennis Dyack and... Uh, I already forgot what his game was called. It's really terrible. My memory is failing me today, especially when I was talking about other stuff. Um, but we were able to go into um, to meetings with developers, and they're showing us previews of games. Um, and that was when I was starting to realize that there is something attractive about being further or closer to game developers um, than the PR side. Um, but I didn't know where to go next. I think that was the the big thing. Is like I really liked what I was doing. I had a really um, fun team around me, um, really great people I was working with at Microsoft, but there was something, there was an itch that was starting to, uh, yeah. develop from that. But, and, and we'll get to that itch, which <laughs> you eventually scratched. So spoilers, but you were building like a community practice at Xbox. And this was just at that 360 era, that 2005, 2006 kind of era is just when somehow the notion of like community management actually like sprang from the ether. Cause I think before that, you know, as a fan games just showed up, they just showed up and maybe there was an ad and maybe there wasn't, and you didn't know anything about them. And, and can you talk a little bit about just how you built that, that kind of community practice and the early blog stuff? Because I think it was like, it, it's, the troubling thing about it is that today to describe how innovative it was, it seems so obvious, but like the kids don't know that before that, like there was just, there was just nothing. Yeah. Uh, well, to be fair, there was a little bit of community work uh, before that. I think that was sort of the inflection point of really paying attention to and seeing the value of the community. So uh, as I said, Microsoft and, and even other companies understood the value of going on forums, but everything was very decentralized. There wasn't a real focus on um, I'm doing that. I think um, some graphics cards and like I said, uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator and Age of Empires is, was the closest example I got to. There were people who were working the forums uh, representing uh, the company and sort of reporting back the voice of the community. So there was a little burgeoning effort there um, that as we got into the 360 era, I think, um, and you know, all the other consoles that came out at that point, GameCube, I think was a little bit earlier. Um, they were doing uh, consumer and community events. They realized that there was uh, value to creating ambassadorship. Um, so the early versions of influencers, which is really funny because we never called them influencers, we right. called them ambassadors. Um, and I, I think it was also an extension of Microsoft at that point. It was also um, running an ambassador program for some of their other uh, businesses. Um, and it all seemed to sort of come together and go, hey, there's value here in building this grassroots discussion around your games and actually bringing back the opinions and feedback from players of your game back into how it shapes your marketing efforts or how it shapes your game even uh, more directly. And so creating that two-way conduit at the time really felt, as you're saying, it really felt natural. It really felt like that's something that it's a no-brainer to do. Um, but there wasn't a playbook for that at that point. 
And um, one of the things that started to kick that off and I think sort of have developers and, and other folks understand the value of it was that we would include community members that were starting to run their own blog. So self, there was a lot of self-publishing around that time. And I think that was part of it. They're running some blogs, they're running fan sites. Um, and you know, you go back and I liked zines and this seemed like there was something there. Um, we would invite them as we would with other press to come visit developers. And there was a, a game I was working on where it was unknown what kind of market there would be for that. Um, they were working on an IP that was very different. They were working on an IP, but the game was very different than what people would think for the IP. It was an RPG, um, and they were creating a, a shooter, which you, you think back, they were probably far ahead of the curve. If they'd come out with that right now, where it was more of a battle royale type game, it could have been live service. But they were working on a shooter, and they didn't know how that would go over. So what we did is we brought in people who were who are ambassador, who could be ambassadors, who are running fan sites um, to come play the game. And I think we all saw the value of, hey, that direct contact, that conversation that we're starting to have there um, was really interesting. Um, and it really, again, it spoke to me. I loved the, the fanzine, the fan site feel to it. It was an area that people were not paying attention to, but it was something that I was involved in. I was reading all the time. Um, and we were doing podcasts. I mean, this was even early podcasts. I was listening to podcasts at that point. Um, and there was something there that we weren't tapping into. That's cool. And you helped Microsoft build that up and it like, this is a, as a, I, I mean, I work at yeah. Xbox now, but I didn't work at Xbox then yeah. but just as a fan, just getting to see it, it really did feel different and it felt special. I don't know. You congratulations. Cause you <laughs> definitely made the Xbox 360 feel super, super sure. cool in a way that, uh, you know, was, I don't know. It's hard to explain. Well, thank you. I, I mean, that it feels very humbling. I mean, this was clearly a very a big team effort with a lot of people who believed in it, both at Edelman and at Microsoft, um, and uh, even the the marketers and the PR folks at Microsoft also believed in it. So everyone was being very open minded, and um, I think without that collective desire to do something different, this wouldn't have existed. So I definitely can't take credit for it, but it was really exciting to be um, contributing to it and to be part of it. Yeah, definitely. So what? Um Why'd you leave? Because you, you end up leaving Microsoft in a couple of years after 360 launches? Yeah, this was this is a little bit more boring, but um, Microsoft really uh, saw the value and they wanted to invest in it. And um, this was around the time that Major Nelson came onto the scene. Um, they were building a, a Xbox blog internally, and it really seemed that uh, business and the opportunity was shifting more internally. And I, I don't... I probably, this is probably my fault, but I didn't even try whether I could go internally, but it was just moving away. And I saw that there wasn't much of a future for me there. Um, working on Xboxes was sort of moving away and going inside to Microsoft. Um, but I'd made some really great contacts um, in the work that I'd done. And around the time that the writing was on the wall, and I, I wasn't planning on going anywhere. I didn't actually hadn't figured out my next steps or even if I wanted to have a next step. Um, one of the people that I'd worked with at Microsoft on the Xbox Live and Xbox Live Arcade work, um, Amy Blair, um, had already moved to LA and was working for Vivendi Games and they're publishing under the Sierra label. Um, and she asked me if I was interested in working with her. And I had a really great experience um, working on the agency side with her. So I said, hey, you know, like, I'd be interested, like, let's let's chat. And I went down an interview with them 
And they were kind of in the similar boat. They'd done some community work. Um, they had some MMOs on the Sierra side. Obviously, Blizzard was a whole separate beast for them. They had some MMOs on the Sierra side uh, where they were, again, doing some community work. But they really wanted to do more and take it to the next level on the publishing side. Uh, and it spoke to me. It was, again, sort of building something up from, not really scratch, but building something that was much bigger and more sophisticated than that was there before. And that opportunity spoke to me. And again, she was such a great partner to work with. I was like, let's let's try this out. Um, and so I jumped at it and moved to LA to to work for Vivendi. That's awesome. And 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 did you at that when did you start to become more of a public face? Was it at Vivendi? Oh, that's a really great question. I actually think it may have been um, afterwards, as far as the real public. I think before then, um, even in in the three hundred and sixty era, my contact was with. Um, fan sites. So I wasn't necessarily giving interviews, but I was definitely the liaison. Yeah, to, you were to the, folks. Yeah, yeah. You, everybody, I mean, everybody. I was pretty well known, I guess you is were what super I was saying. well known <laughs> in the industry as like the, the person to yeah. talk to if you were, if you had a website yeah. or you had a blog or that kind of thing. But yeah, you weren't necessarily Major Nelson. You weren't, right. you weren't like consumer facing. Yeah, race. I did try though because I did run a blog as part of my work, and I was mentioning this yesterday with the Sam Lake. I got in trouble for um, talking a little bit too much about a game, so I was I was trying to say, hey, there there are people here that are um, that want to interact with our community, that want to have a little bit more of that face, that they're actually people behind everything. Um, but I guess to go back um, on the Vivendi side, it was still very much a lot of the same. So um, it was still working with fan sites. Um, it was also really funny because we'd be working with sites that were not considered worthy enough to uh, be working with a regular PR team. Um, but now you look back on it and it's like, oh, this is well, it was a presser. It was like Joystick and Kotaku, but those were not part of the actual PR machine. So you'd be working through that on the community side and bringing them to events, interacting with them. So I was still continuing to do that work um, throughout Vivendi. But again, I was still... Um, I was still sort of building the contacts and, and having um, people that, wow, I'm really messing this up. I was still building the contacts and, and building up a reputation with the people I worked with that I was trustworthy and authentic and transparent. So um, that even if I couldn't go on record with my own name, uh, I could give them the information. I could, you know, sort of clue them in, in terms of like what was happening. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I think that to me that, the thing that really resonates with what you said is that, you know, you're working with these sites that were sort of under the radar or not under the radar, but under the fold line, right? Like yeah. they, they weren't the, the big important sites, you know, so to speak, but it turns out that actually were probably the most influential sites because they were the sites that the, 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 the fans who wanted more than they could get from the mainstream sites would go to, to get the real, you know, the real dirt or, and, uh, and it's uh, it's just a really interesting. It must have been a really interesting strategy uh, or just experience to navigate. Where it's like, oh well, now we've got somebody else talking to the big site. Talk to those guys, and then but those guys are the ones who are actually driving. You know, those are the guys who the big sites are reading to figure out what they should put on their front page. So yeah, absolutely. And it's even funny when you go back and and you look at um, people that I was working with on fan sites, the the careers that they've built. Because they like they try to say this. I again, I don't want to take credit that I had um, any sort of significant impact on their career trajectory, but because they felt that someone was listening to them and paying attention to them, 
opened up their their thoughts that there would be opportunities for them. Um, a good friend of mine, Nick Sutner, um, he and his buddy ran an Xbox fan site in Chicago and through giving them code and giving them interviews, uh, he felt like, hey, there's a career here and he moved to San Francisco to get a job at GameSpot. And he, that was just the beginning of his career. And like now he's at Panic and working on Playdate, which is like really amazing to think that if you really cultivate these fan sites, these people who are really passionate about games, they could have a contribution. They could have a career in games that maybe they would have never thought. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was having a conversation the other day here at Dice with someone just talking about working with influencers or creators on the, the YouTube side and the TikTok side, but not the big ones. Like just, they're just like the smaller, the better, because those are the people who are really passionate. And those are the people who, you know, if they have 800 or 2000 fans, you know, like those 2000 fans are like really keyed in and paying attention. And so I think it's, it's interesting that that strategy is still working and still feels like kind of like a secret strategy, even though, you know, you, you knew this strategy, you know, however many years ago, 15 years ago. And, and, you know, I, I started at IGN, I mean, like before it existed and, 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 you know, we, we were kind of that below the fold thing cause we weren't a magazine right. and, you know, the PR people who interacted with us, you remembered and, and, and it, 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 it was a real relationship that, 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 you know, like paid dividends later for, you know, for both parties. Well, I think it's, it's really gratifying when you start working with the smaller influencers or having more direct uh, contact with the community because they're so passionate. They're so authentic with their love of what you, what you're working on, the games that you're on. And that's really motivating all the time. And I think that's something that is really important when you do work at a developer publisher, when you're talking about, hey, there's that two-way conversation to bring in that excitement to the people who are working on it. Because when you're heads down, you're working on a game for three to five years, you might not realize that there's this love for what you do, this intense love for what you do uh, on the other side of it. And to uh, have a pathway to bring that into the people who are working on it um, and to yourself is really motivating. It just gives you all that energy. Yeah, it is. It's it's huge. It's one of the big reasons I tell people to still, you know, go go to PAX because it's like, okay, maybe the ROI on how many people play your game, blah blah blah. Like, it, it, maybe it's hard, but the ROI on seeing somebody like smile when they're playing your game and seeing where they smile when they're playing your game, like you can't. It's first of all super energizing, and second of all, you just know so much more about your game when you see it. Absolutely. So you, at this point in your career, you've you've worked on the the PR side. You've now you've worked on kind of the agency side for games and, and done some cool stuff. Now you've worked on the publisher side, and then Naughty Dog. Yeah, and then Naughty Dog. It was funny. I was working at Vivendi, and I woke up on a Sunday morning, and to the news that Vivendi and Activision were merging. Uh, it was about three months after I moved there, and not long after I got a call from my boss who was basically like, I'm sorry, I had no idea. We just moved you down here and all of a sudden your future feels like it might be in question uh, or you don't know what it is. Um, and I will give credit to uh, my boss at that point. She was incredibly supportive of uh, figuring out what was next, um, whether or not that meant going on to Activision or anything else. And she was lining up all of these job interviews for me, um, some 
some really massive companies now that at that point were just being a startup, which I will not name, but um, it was just really fascinating that she was helping me out that much and being very transparent. She was asking me how my interviews were going, helping me prep a little bit. And uh, it, outside of that, Naughty Dog came calling. They were starting work on Uncharted 2. They were building a multiplayer component to it, and they knew that they wanted to have more community contact and uh, have that two-way conversation and, and build a, an online community from it. Because they knew they had passionate fans for many, many years. Um, so I interviewed with them. Um, and uh, again, I, I think back and the, the boss I had at Vivendi is, is one of the best ones I've ever had. Um, because again, she was so supportive with everything. Um, she used to be the product manager for Crash Bandicoot at uh, Sony a long time. So she knew. This is Amy, right? This is Amy Blair, yeah. yeah. Um, so she uh, she knew Evan. So she called up Evan and, and put in a good word for me and sort of, sort of sealed the deal. Um, but I was really excited um, to, when I was doing the interview process, to sort of learn what was next. I thought Uncharted was really groundbreaking for what they were doing on the character side. Um, I was sitting on the forums at E3 with everyone going, oh, look at the rust on the bars. That must mean, you know, they're near the ocean and the salt and the corrosion. So all these details that were being pulled out. Um, so I really believed in, in what was going next. So it was really great that there was a sort of serendipitous convergence of they came calling, Amy had worked with them, um, and that we could make it happen. That's awesome. Yeah. And and I mean, I, I think it, it, it speaks to one of the interesting things in games, which is in a... You know, it's it's a big industry, but it's also a small community. And if you're a, like a, you know, a, a stand up person, I don't know another word to put it like, um, you know, bad things can happen, you know, or unforeseen events can happen. But you, you've got that community behind you who can help you find your way into the next into the next role. And you've been at Naughty Dog for like 16 years, 15 yeah. years, something like a long F time, 15 years. Yeah, this yeah. year. That's awesome. And how like. Take us through just the. Um, I want to. I want to try and ask these questions without super fanning out on just Uncharted. Um, uh, but take us through the 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 kind of because you've had a couple different roles at Naughty Dog. But take us through just like how that how that's worked. Yeah. Um, so as I mentioned, I, when I started at Naughty Dog, uh, they hadn't announced Uncharted 2 yet, and they knew they were working on a multiplayer component. And I had come in saying, hey, you know, we'll help you build a community. We'll start working on those smaller sites that were below the fold, as you put it, uh, as a way to um, really draw attention to what they're trying to do with Uncharted 2. Uh, I think we all felt like Uncharted was something special. Drake, Uncharted Drake's Fortune was something special, but it maybe didn't quite get the attention that uh, we felt it deserved. Um, as a fan, it, it probably didn't feel that way. It was one of the best games for a PS3 at that time, but um, it felt like the, there was much more uh, that that was untapped there. Um, and so I came in going, hey, I'm going to do what I've done before, which I really love, which is how do we build a community practice? How do we engage with a community that hasn't been engaged um, heavily uh, from scratch? And how do we start that up? And so we started building that, but I realized early on uh, it was kind of, it boggles my mind that Evan, who uh, was the co-president at the time, he was in all of the marketing meetings. He was in all of the PR meetings. He was reviewing assets that were coming in. He was doing all of this work that we could offload from him so he could focus on helping drive the creative vision of the game and support um, what Amy and, and Bruce were doing with the creative vision of the game. And uh, I realized there's an opportunity here to really think about 
what is the role of somebody inside the studio to help all of these different facets, whether it's community, marketing, PR, licensing, anything that's consumer facing, anything that our players, our community interact with, it really should feel holistic and it should feel cohesive. Uh, but it really was born from, we should offload some of this work. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's weird is when I, you know, look at your resume or look at you on LinkedIn, it's like, oh, director of communications at a studio. That makes sense. But actually it doesn't. I mean, it does. It does today. It makes perfect <laughs> sense. But in, you know, 2000, I guess it was 2008 or 2007, like, uh, or right around that era, like the idea that a studio that's working with a publisher would have its own director of communications was a little bit I don't want to say radical, but it was not like a, it actually wasn't the norm. Yeah, I, I don't think it was uh, something that was very common at that point. And e even then, I, when I hear myself describe it, it was kind of born by accident because the point was I was going to be the community manager and it was more, hey, you've got a studio of about 100 people. There is more work. How do we focus the work in, in the areas that make sense for the pre people who are there? And a lot of it was really let's offload the work from Evan and some of the other folks to someone who has experience with this, who can cultivate the relationships with Sony, um, who really understands how to, have, how to translate what we're doing to our players and to our community um, and, and be integral to that. So it was kind of... A, an evolution of leveling up of what I feel that community should have always been. Um, I think when you look back at that time, the community managers, the people who were doing community work always struggled to feel like they had a seat at the table with all the marketers and the PR folks. It always felt like that was secondary. And this felt an opportunity to go, no, no, this is what our place is here. Um, and it, all of these pieces sort of fell into place at Naughty Dog. Yeah. And you, you really, built a new kind of model of community management or community relations, I, I would say. Um, what, um, the road wasn't without bumps, like Naughty Dog had a couple of bumps in the road. I mean, games are ridiculous, but how do you deal with, um, you know, uh, times when you have, um, bad press over this or that and how do you deal with it both with the community and with the press to some extent but also internally because it's it's got to hurt the the team you know both because of what's happening and, and what's being said how do you how do you as somebody who you know cares about the studio how do you how do you address that yeah, uh, that's a really uh, complex question that um, we'll try to unravel. Uh, I'll start with internally. So, um, you know, we talked before about what's really great about working in the community is bringing in the enthusiasm to people who have their heads down, all the developers who have their heads down for years who might not under remember the passion that uh, is out there and the love for what we do. And so when you do get a bit of a negative hit, it's a lot of it is thinking about morale building and getting people to really understand that what we're working on is special. Um, I, I think I'm fortunate enough that the games we were working on are, there's something special to them that um, everybody was really passionate and smart at the work that they're doing, that that is in the game and you could see it even if it wasn't there uh, at an early point or closer to the final product. So a lot of it is really reminding people of the love there is for in general of what we do and saying we're going to get there because we care about what we do we care about the game um, and it's helped again by just the incredible intelligence and passion of the people that you're surrounded with 
Um, but on the external side, I think the big thing is when you're working with, at least on my, from my point of view, and, and this bears out internally, the big thing is, is being transparent and candid. If things aren't working, if a, uh, an update to your multiplayer just isn't landing with your community, being transparent of saying, Hey, we tried something and, uh, yeah, we see that it's not working or your reaction isn't, we'll take that back and, and we'll think about it. Um, and if, it, if the change is not popular, why we would stick with that change. I remember there was a, an update we did to one of our multiplayer, um, games that I think everyone has sat through, but we basically said, Hey, here's why we made this update. Um, here's what we believed in and at least being transparent about the reasons why we did to it. And I think that's the core of anything that we try to do, whether it's good or bad is just maintaining that candor. That's awesome. And now career wise along the way, you become vice president, community manager to vice president. Let's talk about that, that transition. Yeah. Um, so around 2006 or so as we're 2007, as we're ramping up work on the last of us part two, we're, we'd grown incredibly in scale at Naughty Dog. I started there with about 75 or hundred people. We were now at about 400 people full time, uh, working on the game. And one of the things I noticed, um, it, it wasn't just me, but one of the things I had come to notice, um, as part of it is that a lot of our processes, a lot of the things that we we're doing for our teams didn't really scale. Uh, we were a very organic studio. And I had the visibility of it because I was to this because my boss was Evan. Uh, so I had direct contact in the studio leadership so I could hear and see what was happening and, and sort of what our concerns were. And we had uh, a bit of a time where, um, as with any sort of development that's long, you've had ups and downs with morale. Uh, we were um, getting really busy and maybe we weren't having company meetings as often. So our communication loop with everyone wasn't um, happening as frequently as possible. And we were hearing about it from our teams. And I started to think about, well, our, our team at Naughty Dog, everyone that works at Naughty Dog is also a community. They might not be our player community, but they have desires and they have needs and they want to engage with the work and they want to engage with our studio. So why don't we take what we're thinking about? Why don't we take how we approach community externally and think about that internally? And how do we build a two-way communication loop? How do we build processes and, and structures and learning opportunities so that people feel that the people that work for us, our teams, feel like the studio cares about them, is engaged with them and also listening. So it's really just shifting the community lens from outside to inside. But a lot of the key principles, uh, the key ways to, to work were the same. Um, and that started off a, a period where I was trying to think about, well, how do we, how do we start? How do we start that? What are the sort of the key building blocks we need to put into place? so that our team members feel like the studio is looking out for them long-term. Cool. And that, that eventually evolved into your, your current job title, which is head of culture and communication. That's correct. There's, there's <laughs> a lot. I mean, first of all, that's a, I think probably a unique job title in the game industry, but maybe on earth, <laughs> which is, which is pretty awesome, but there's just a lot to talk about there. How do you, I mean, and I have a million questions, like I've, I've worked at studios, I work at Xbox now and managing your internal culture is like an endlessly fascinating, complex 
insolvable but always improvable kind of problem. But as you guys, as, as Naughty Dog grew from, you know, a hundred person studio to a several hundred person studio, the culture, I mean, culture, culture changes every day, right? But, but the culture inevitably changed. And how do you, how do you do it? How do you determine what <laughs> culture you want? How do you determine, you know, how, how you, how you shape the culture and evolve the sh- culture and, and, um, and, yeah, I'll I'll stop there because I, sure. I have a follow-up question about how tiring it is, but I'll I'll start there. Well, I we're lucky at Naughty Dog that the studio overall has been around for forty years and twenty years uh, plus since uh, PlayStation has owned it, and so there's some very key principles about how the studio works that's very deeply ingrained, even if they weren't formalized or spoken about. Uh, that we're very iterative. Uh, we have a very collaborative uh, environment. And there's some key things that have to make that work. Um, for it to be collaborative and iterative, you have to create an environment of safety, um, safety to try things and fail, um, to pivot, uh, to uh, provide feedback and to be able to speak up. We, we frequently said um, great ideas can come from anywhere. And, and the idea is that you can talk to people outside of your discipline and either give them an idea or give them feedback on their work. So a lot of those things were very well established for a long time at the studio. It was more about going, how do we double down on that? How do we harness that and imbue that in everything that we do so that whether you've been at the studio for three weeks or you've been there for 15 years, you're always coming back to, hey, this is the core principles of what the studio is. And then taking that and going, there's an opportunity for you as someone at the studio to grow, to actually leverage all of these principles and say, there's a career for you here long-term as long as you, um, not as necessarily as long, but by sticking with these principles, there's a career for you here long-term and what are those opportunities and building everything around that. So it's a lot of constant communication about where the studio is headed and and how do we do that? Um, How do we stick to our core principles? And then it's going, as we build a career path for people, as we start thinking about that there's leads who are managing people and directors who are managing people, that as people managers, they really model the behavior that you want and giving them the support and the education to improve. I mean, it goes with iteration. We can always get better. Uh, People management is a journey of learning um, to give them the resources so that um, our people management, our, our people managers can really support the teams to bring their best selves at work. And that just extends to communicating the studio often about what our programs are in the future, um, what the future is of the studio, uh, thinking about things like diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, we're really fortunate with the games that we have that we're bringing in all of these diverse voices and underrepresented groups. And they have unique needs in terms of how they need to be rep- Right, uh, supported at the studio or how the studio um, should be supporting them. So it's also thinking about we're creating that two-way loop with them as well, that two-way conversation to go, here's an opportunity for you and here's how you can show up. Yeah, it's 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 a big task. As you do grow the studio from, you know, the the smaller studio, the folks who can remember maybe not all 40 years, but but 30 years or or and maybe knew the founders and 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 you know kind of were able to kind of just grok the original studio culture to somebody who now is joining a you know a multi-hundred person studio that has this amazing legacy of games but has only been there a few weeks do you find that you have to formalize how you document the culture 
Yeah, that that is definitely part of the growing pains as you as you scale up that way um, is that learning by osmosis is uh, far more difficult at that point, because, as you mentioned, culture shifts over time and often very unintentionally where um, maybe some notion of what our core principles are might shift slightly, um, hopefully never into a, a point where it ends up being toxic, but it might not be the same experience for every single person. So what we have come to realize in the last couple of years, and I think the pandemic accelerated some of this because not being in the same location uh, is ripe for uh, a drift of culture, sort of what's important for the studio, um, is going and sitting down. And, and we're working right now on uh, formalizing what our values are. And um, it feels very corporate at the beginning, but we realize how important it is for someone to be able to go to an internal website or in our speech and have a concept that's easily graspable that is the same across everywhere so that people have a roadmap. Um, our team members have a roadmap in the face of ambiguity um, to follow. Um, so uh, that's one aspect of it. And, and I mentioned before, like we're, we're creating all of these ways to support our people managers. And again, a lot of it's just trying to have this consistency of experience so that um, our culture remains very tight to what is successful for us. Yeah, I think you didn't say the word, but what I'm hearing is that you guys are, you're the, excuse me, the studio is very intentional about building the culture and, and trying to communicate the culture that, that you want to have so that everybody feels that they're part of the same team. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're being very intentional about every aspect, which I think is really great to see. And I talk to other studios and it seems like we're all kind of in the same point, a lot of us are in the very same point where we're realizing as we grow, as our projects get bigger and, and take longer, that we have to really think intentionally about every single thing that we're doing for our team members. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, just a, it's, it's really hard work. Like I, have, <laughs> I have so much admiration for the work you're doing. I, I know exactly how hard it is, but it's also incredibly satisfying when you can, or it must, my guess is that it must be incredibly satisfying when you can really help um, keep a culture, you know, healthy and strong and, 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 you know, see somebody starting, maybe, maybe they're right out of school and they're, you know, just folded their zine or whatever. And, um, and know that, you know, they're starting at your studio and hopefully they're going to, you know, they have a chance that they might retire from your studio. Yeah, that that's the goal. And I think that's the thing that, um, as a industry, perhaps we've been a little lax in thinking about, that we want to keep people working in these jobs for their entire lives if they want to. And frequently you hear about burnout and you hear about people who are leaving or, or how the industry is on, um, not very friendly. And I think that all, everyone I've come into contact doesn't want it to be that way. And it's really up to us to go, hey, to, to not only tell people who are starting an industry or people who have been here for a while say there can be you can be here for life or you can be at this company for life. But I think those of us that, that really feel strongly about it are in positions where we can affect that change. We just need to start sharing that information across studios yeah. and really say, how can we do this better? And how can we tell people that there's a long-term career for them here? Because uh, I've had the fortune of working at a company where we've had people who've been there for their entire history. I'd love everybody to feel that way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it does come down to just being intentional about things, whether it's being intentionally ex inclusive or um, or just being very intentional about setting that culture, because th like 
you want people to want to stay at a company, you know, not, not that people don't grow and change and move. And, you know, of course you support people on their journey, but you want people to feel comfortable that they can stay someplace as long as they want and don't feel like driven out or, you know, or just like miserable. So it's, it's a, sorry, that's, I think we're getting close to wrapping up. I don't want to end on a note of people being miserable. Sure. But, uh, it's, uh, it is, it, it can be like so joyful when it's working and you feel it when it's working, you feel it in the break room, you just feel it in the, in the air. And, um, how do you, um, I guess this, maybe this will be the last question, but how do you deal with a job like, uh, culture management where you can never, succeed and i don't mean you can't have a positive culture i just mean that you said it you're you're always learning you're always growing everything's always changing like how do you how do you stay motivated to keep focused on it when it's a you know like a axiomatically like impossible task to win at but i i think that's a an analog to working in games there is always a new challenge whether you're the developer and there's a new game you're coming out every three to five years and there's a whole new set of problems around the game that you're developing. Or if you work at a console maker, there's a new console every seven to 10 years, and that's a whole new problem space. I think this is just an extension of it. And that's what's so fascinating for me. I was attracted by the games industry and I stayed in games because there's always a new problem to solve. And the time scales can be really short to very long. And I find culture to be the exact same thing. There is these incredible problems to always solve. It's ever changing and keeps it fresh. And the timescales can be really big. And that's, that's what I really like. I like thinking about things in a three to five to 10 year timescale and go, what are the problems that we're trying to anticipate? But let's stay, let's keep the flexibility to roll with the punches when that changes, uh, because there's always going to be something new. There's going to be new information, new, um, new ways of doing things, uh, new energy, new ideas coming in. And I, that's what's fascinating for me personally is, is always been, it's just that there's always a new problem to solve. That's awesome. All right. I think we'll leave it there. That's a great way to, that's a great way to finish it out. So thanks so much for coming out to talk to us and, um, yeah, congratulations on all your success. And I'm pleased that I didn't fan out on, uh, on, uh, last of us as much other things as much as I thought. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. And I have to say, I'm, I'm so humbled to be on the Game Makers Notebook. I always look up to this podcast and it's one of the ones on regular rotation. So I can't say how honored I am to be here. Thank you for joining us for the Game Makers Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.